Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm John Schumann with Medical Monday. Anton Chekhov, William Carlos Williams, Robin Cook, Michael Crichton. These are some of the more famous doctor writers you may have heard of or read. My guest today, Syed Tabatabai, is a practicing nephrologist, a kidney specialist in San Antonio, Texas, who writes in his spare time as an art and a catharsis from his daily work in hospitals, dialysis units, and the medical office. Following a family tradition, he writes poetry, not of any particular genre, and his medium has become Twitter, that short-form blogging tool that you've probably heard about as it's frequently in the news over the last few years, but may ask yourself, as I used to, why would I want to go on Twitter? As it turns out, in addition to all the vitriol that's sometimes there, in many corners of Twitter, scientists, doctors, and journalists share valuable information that can lead to learning and knowledge distribution. You have to know where to look, but MedTwitter, as it's known, is full of useful tutorials for students and, well, seasoned doctors, too. Tabatabai says he wrote more during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, when there was so much more fear and uncertainty. He developed a broader following and has written hundreds of Twitter poems, short stories and reflections, really, that earned him a book deal. His new book is These Vital Signs, A Doctor's Notes on Life and Loss in Tweets, and it's just out from Harper. In it, he includes 29 of his poems, which, woven together, tell of his family history, his career, and his experiences as a doctor. Syed Tabatabai, doctor and author of These Vital Signs, is my guest today on Studio Tulsa Medical Monday. Dr. Syed Tabatabai, welcome to Medical Monday. I'd love to start just by having you tell us a little bit about your family history. Your grandfather in the old country was both a military general, but also a poet you learned. Tell us about him. Um, in my book, uh, the beginning is really about uh, uh, my family and, uh, you know, where, where I came from, where, where we come from, the people before us. And my grandfather, I actually write about two grandfathers in the book, my, my paternal grandfather and my maternal grandfather. And the one you're referring to is my dad's dad, my paternal grandfather. He was uh, a military man. He was a, a brigadier general um, in the army. And this was uh, back in Pakistan and, you know, many years ago. And uh, he had this other side to him, though. He he loved poetry. He loved reciting poetry. He loved reading poetry. He loved writing poetry. And the writing part I didn't really know about until uh, closer to his death is that he actually had a pen name that he wrote under. And he was kind of secretive about his writing initially. But after my grandmother passed away, he really poured his heart and soul into writing this poetry. And I think part of that was his grief and dealing with his loss. And uh, it was really transformational for me to find that out later, how much he wrote and, and the depth and, and breadth of his writing. And it sort of uh, paralleled what I was doing, you know, being a physician and then kind of writing for myself, uh, not quite in secret, but not really sharing it with anybody, but uh, it really resonated with me. So you've been a writer for a long time in terms of just using writing as a catharsis. Is that is that right? For me, writing has always been therapeutic. Um, I, when, I was a, when I was a kid, I started out writing for fun. I would write my own comic books. I'd write my own short stories. I loved reading. And uh, then the older I got, I sort of drifted away from writing a little bit. But when I went back, um, when I was in med school, I went back to writing uh, as a form of therapy and catharsis. And I've really stuck with it since then. Now, the book, uh, These Vital Signs, is uh, a compendium of your Twitter poetry, but I'm curious, do you write other do you write other in other forms or is it all poetry? Do you write prose or do you keep journals or what other kinds of writing do you do, whether you publish it or not? So I do keep journals. I, I do sort of do just narrative long form kind of writing. 
Um, you know, for me as a writer, the Twitter uh, aspect of having limited characters is almost like a game. You know, I like uh, uh, thinking, how, how do I fit this in the box, so to speak? But it's also refreshing to stretch my legs and just write without worrying about a word count. Well, your grandfather, your paternal grandfather, who was the Brigadier General, who also wrote poetry, one of the more interesting aspects is the lyricism of his poetry uh, is in a way lost on you because it's not it's not translated, right? So it's not it's in an older language or a language that I think you don't speak or read, perhaps. Tell us a little bit about what language it's in. So he, he wrote in Urdu, which is actually, it's a very beautiful language. It's very expressive. They have like a dozen words for the sound rain makes, for example. And it's a really beautiful lyrical language. And I hear people recite his poetry or discuss his poetry and praise it. And um, unfortunately, I'm not, you know, versed in Urdu. I can't read it. People have explained it to me, but, you know, it's like anytime you have to go through layers of translation, you sort of lose a little bit of that chain of the original beauty of the verse. Um, so someday, maybe hopefully I can learn, learn the language better and, and read it in its natural form. Yeah, it kind of, with all of the news about artificial intelligence and like chat GPT or whatever, I almost wonder if you could... <laughs> see what the uh, what the internet or what the what the chatbots can do with it it would be kind of interesting to know how it would translate or if it could you know in effect have some of the lyricism or the or the actual poetry and translate it into you know readable english it'd be kind of an interesting task well you became a kidney doctor a nephrologist and uh, how did you decide to do that cuz in the book you you one of your poems is about sort of how you went down your career path and your career choice and i guess at first you thought you'd be a trauma surgeon and one of your mentors was in fact a trauma surgeon but there was only one problem with that I did not have the passion for it. <laughs> and, you know, kudos to my mentor. He, he also sensed that in me, is that a lot of times uh, in medicine, it's not uncommon, actually, in med school. People start out thinking they'll do one thing. And, of course, once you're in the trenches, so to speak, and once you're learning about it, it might not be for you for whatever reason. And, and that was sort of my journey through medicine is initially I had this one idea of something that I thought would be really exciting, something that I thought I was inclined towards, but uh, there was just one problem is I didn't love it. And I really wanted to do something I love because of how grueling it seems. You know, you have to have that passion for it to sustain you. And uh, for me, nephrology ended up being initially, you know, it was I was kind of deselecting options based on how I felt about them. And then I was gravitating towards internal medicine. And then I had the fortune of some really great mentors, um, people who explained nephrology to me and really turned me on to it as a subject. Because uh, quite frankly, I hated nephrology initially. I thought the kidneys were way too complicated. I was never going to get this stuff. And uh, a lot of med students don't like the kidney physiology portion. I'm sure you, you might be able to relate to that. But uh, in the end, it worked out great. And now I, I can't imagine doing anything else. I love what I do. So this might be a strange question, but do, do the kidneys, do they have a poetry to them? Or are they poetic in any way? To me, absolutely they are. I think uh, there's there's truly a poetry to what the kidneys do because they are the ultimate organs of balance in a way. You know, they're always striving to find that edge of the knife on which life exists. Uh, the, the few points of pH, the few points of electrolyte levels, you know, the few points of volume, of blood pressure. Uh, we exist in a very narrow window and, and the kidneys have this harmony to them as they keep humming along every day and, and bringing us back into balance. And they do that despite insults we sort of hurl at them, you know, like perturbations in, you know, our diet, our dietary indiscretions, shall we say, or our chemical indiscretions. Uh, are the kidneys have a pretty important role in maintaining that balance, I think, as you point out. I was wondering, Dr. Tabatabi, if you if you would read for us. I'm happy to, to, to read something for you. Yeah, the w one that really stuck out with me in terms of 
your perspective and on your career uh, is one kind of right in the middle. It's called the bouquet. Um, I was wondering if you could share that with our listeners. All right, the bouquet. The medical student shadowing me looks over my clinic schedule. She sighs. Dr. T, your youngest patient today is 70. Don't you get tired of only seeing older patients? It's a valid question. Elderly patients in my clinic in general tend to have a greater burden of chronic illnesses, more medications, more complexity than their younger counterparts. But I look down at my patient list and I smile. I don't see what she sees. At first glance, you might find Carl a bit intimidating. Gruff and with a jaw that stubbornly juts out as if daring you to try him, he seems perpetually irritated. But Carl runs a dance studio and still dances every day at 80. And when he smiles, the sun shines for him. Gladys shows me a photograph. She seems proud and I regard it carefully. It's a black and white shot of the concert. A young singer has his back to the camera. The rest is a sea of screaming fans. A young Gladys is in the front row, clearly visible. The singer, Elvis. John and Lucy always come to their appointments together. Sitting beside each other, they hold hands every single appointment. I'm always moved by how quiet each one is when it's the other's turn during the appointment. They've been married for 60 years. Anjali brings me food without fail, all sorts of delicious desserts that she cooks herself. I once tried to refuse, trying to lose some weight, but she looked like she would cry. Her husband explains, they had a son who died in a car accident years ago, and she used to cook for him. Howard can barely hear me. Every single visit, he apologizes for being almost deaf and explains, I lost most of my hearing in the war. He has a photo in his wallet of him in military uniform. I ask him how he won all the medals he's wearing. He grins. I kept my head down. Alma has an amazing knack for gardening. I look forward to her appointment so that I can learn more about what's in season in South Texas this time of year. We discuss how therapeutic it is to watch a plant sprout. Her secret, love. Every living thing needs love to grow. Steve plays tennis almost every day. He's in his late 70s and one day, finally, I have to suggest that he start toning it down. I'm worried about dehydration. He says he understands, he'll tone it down. He promises. Then he starts walking his dogs for four miles a day. Mike is one of the kindest human beings I've ever met. He brings my entire office staff a bouquet of red and white roses every single visit. His smile is gentle, his eyes are kind. He asks me how I'm doing at the start of every appointment and really wants to know. One day Mike doesn't show for his appointment. I know something's wrong when his wife sends us a bouquet of red and white roses and a small note. Mike passed away in his sleep. It was peaceful. He loved you and your office staff very much. Thank you. My heart is broken. Don't you want to see younger patients, maybe simpler patients, at least sometimes? I look up from my patient list and my reverie to respond. This is a privilege. My student smiles, but the look in her eyes tell me she doesn't quite seem to understand. I hope that someday she will. That's Dr. Syed Tabarabai, who read us his poem, The Bouquet, in his new book, These Vital Signs, A Doctor's Notes on Life and Loss in Tweets. And Syed, um, what you know, moved me about that poem was the framing of a medical student you know, working with you or shadowing you, asking you about sort of what I guess she perceives as the difficulty of caring for all of these older complex patients. And the poem itself doesn't you know, you don't really focus on all on the medical details. It's really about them as human beings and, and the interactions that you have with them. And I mean, it resonates with me because often you can remember certain identifying details about patients or it's why we ask what we call a social history. Like what, do you, what hobbies do you have or what do you like to do when you're not working or when you're, uh, you know, not <laughs> focused on your medical conditions? And this is, this is just such a paints such a beautiful tableau. 
and of course the bouquet of, of your patient who died because that's a reality of course of being a doctor and of course caring for older individuals and, and that happens so there's it's really nice i'm curious on your poetry you said in the book there are 29 poems and you've written hundreds of them on twitter do you do you have a is it worth like labeling it as a genre do you call it twitter poetry or twitter free verse or uh, like what kind of poetry would you ascribe your work to if, if there is a certain kind or is it just more free form I, th I think it's mostly freeform. I mean, I don't do a lot of the conventions of, of uh, you know, traditional poetry. I mean, the main thing really here is the the format, right? The the limited character format. But um, yeah, I, if anyone comes up with a great name for this kind of writing, I'm all ears. I think at one point in the book, I call it tweetistry. But, uh, I, you know, that was just something I came up with. Tweetistry is, is good. I like that. I, I sort of like, I like <laughs> Twitterverse, Twitter freeverse. I want to turn a little bit to COVID, which... Perhaps our listeners are, you know, certainly well understood to be exhausted from from hearing about, but we're mercifully we're in a, a very quiet period where the pandemic has largely become endemic. Uh, it's just something we live with. Um, actually, I had a work colleague, a physician who uh, just had COVID this past week, uh, her very first time ever getting COVID, uh, you know, three plus years in, into the pandemic, she had managed to stay safe and avoid it all this time in spite of caring for people with COVID and, and sick individuals. So it's, it's just very interesting. But you... You were very much in the thick of um, hospital-based care during the darkest days of the COVID pandemic when we were, of course, terribly frightened, when the world essentially shut down, when we had no no meaningful treatments, and nor did we have the, the vaccines available at that point. And a couple of the poems in the book, uh, you talk about, you know, donning and doffing your personal protective equipment. But mostly what I took away from some of the poems was the sheer sense of exhaustion that you had um, and the emotion and and the tears. Uh, and there's one in particular where you talk about rain on the windshield and it reflects your emotional state. But can you tell us, just share with us what that was like? I mean, it seems as though you built a large audience uh, on Twitter during the pandemic with your a lot of your writing. What, did you write more frequently or post more during the pandemic? I think the volume the amount of writing I did for sure and the intensity of my writing really ramped up during the pandemic because writing for me has always had an element of, of being therapeutic and I really needed that during the pandemic. I mean, we were in, you know, I'm in San Antonio. We, we were hit pretty hard um, by COVID. We were one of the, the hot spots, so to speak. And, um, you know, I, I know I can speak for my colleagues too. I mean, we saw death and suffering in a scale that I frankly hope to never see again in a hospital. Um, we went from having one ICU to four ICUs, all packed at capacity, having ICU patients not, you know, waiting to get in the ICU. And like you said, you know, in the initial part, we didn't have any therapies. We're getting on phone calls every day with physicians all over the world, you know, doctors, you know, in, in Bergamo telling us what they had done. Um, you know, doctors uh, all over the world were kind of facing this uncertainty together. And I think part of what made me um, get a larger audience during COVID was there was a bit of a blind spot in our communications in the sense that um, the people in the thick of things in the hospitals uh, versus the people who are at home are kind of wondering, you know, everything was, you know, um, relatively quiet in the sense that, uh, you know, if you're not seeing this up close and personal, you, it was legitimate to wonder, you know, what's all this fuss about, you know, uh, it seems like it's pretty quiet out here. And my writing kind of came in to show people on a human level what was really happening. I wasn't using a lot of, you know, terminology or jargon or anything like that. I was just kind of writing purely from a humanistic perspective as to what facing this thing every day was like. And I think 
that was kind of a little window that was missing in our communication in the sense that there's a lot of science communication happening, a lot of study results and, and stuff like that. But this aspect of it, especially from a physician's viewpoint, I, I think there's a uh, there was a, um, a dearth of that. And so I, I sort of stepped into that void. Yeah. And as you point out, there, there was a ton of scientific communication and arguably a lot of scientific miscommunication or disinformation. And sadly, of course, the pandemic and COVID-19 became so politicized. But even in the medical community, it, it largely became politicized as there were, you know, scolds uh, and, and then, you know, counter scolds in a, in a way, physicians or medical professionals, you know, telling uh, many of us that we were overwrought or that we were, uh, you know, restricting freedom too much, uh, things like that, or that we, you know, because the science was evolving, which science has a tendency to do, of course, but with more attention paid to it, it seemed like there were folks sort of fanning the flames of the fact that when uh, the medical community sort of changed its recommendations that this showed that, you know, institutions like medicine or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention weren't as trustworthy. And this was uh, this was kind of a disappointing aspect for many of us, I think, in, in all of our careers. You, you have a metaphor you use for COVID uh, in the book a couple on a couple of occasions. Uh, you call it the monster. Can you tell us what what aspects of, of that resonate or, or how you envisioned it as the monster? You know, I, I called it uh, the monster, and I think there's there is yeah a story in there called the monster, where especially in the early part of COVID, it really felt like you were when you were putting on the protective gear and you were stepping into that space where you knew a patient had this uh, novel virus that had a fatality rate, you know, and no known treatment. It's a sensation that, uh, frankly, us as as uh, people in modern you know uh, civilization communities don't get that often. The sense that suddenly we're not at the top of the food chain, so to speak. You know, suddenly you're in the presence of something that that can be uh, lethal and, and and rapidly so. And so, for me as a writer, of course, my imagination is always in overdrive. And um, when I was uh, just looking at the units and and thinking about you know the, the kind of primal fear uh, that was there initially that was eventually, you know, obviously replaced with numbness and, and uh, you know, some degree of anger and resentment and all that kind of stuff. But that initial fear when COVID was just hitting us and the hairs would stand up in the back of your neck as you were zipping up that, that PPE and getting ready to go into that room with the air filtration systems going, it really felt like you were stepping into the darkness and uh, there was a monster in there with you and it could see clearly, but you could barely make out its outline. You know, that's kind of the the fear uh, that that you felt and, and the anxiety. And for me, that metaphor stuck. And, and I just called it that. I just called it the monster because what we saw was monstrous. I mean, the the kind of avalanche of, of pain and suffering that hit us and it hit us pretty rapidly. I mean, to me, it still feels like COVID happened on one day. And I write about that day in the monster. It was like a Thursday and I was on with an intensivist and just suddenly our phones would not stop ringing. And suddenly it felt like Everybody in San Antonio had a uh, bad cough and fever and respiratory distress. And that, that was really when it felt like the monster was out and on the loose and we were trying to rein it in. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a horror movie, except it was real. I mean, that's the thing. You're listening to Studio Tulsa. It's Medical Monday. I'm John Schumann. And my guest today is Dr. Syed Tabatabai, who is a kidney specialist uh, working out of San Antonio, Texas. He's the author of a great short book of poetry called These Vital Signs, A Doctor's Notes on Life and Loss in Tweets. And uh, an aspect of it is COVID, which we were just talking about, and Dr. Tabatabai's work uh, as a nephrologist during the, the height of the pandemic and all throughout the pandemic. And Sayed, I was wondering, uh, there's another poem I was hoping you would read for us that gives a, a real window into, not so much focused on COVID really, in fact, maybe at all, but it's, it's um, 
called Reset on page 53, but it's it's sort of uh, a reflection of like your life as a doctor and kind of burnout or moral injury or um, what it's like. Um, can you read that for us? Sure. The day I quit medicine was a Thursday in 2004. I was a freshly minted intern arriving at my teaching hospital with that uniquely confusing mix of optimism and imposter syndrome that had defined my medical education. I thought I was ready. Instead, I was hopelessly lost. As I sat on the Orange Line subway in Boston, a thought occurred to me. I could quit. Oh, how easy it would be to just sit there and let the train doors close and just miss my stop. A life without being paged or being on call, without so many decisions carrying such grave consequences, with free weekends, always. A life outside of medicine, an actual life. And so I quit medicine. Except not medicine on the whole, just medicine as I knew it. I'd come too far, worked too hard, and cared too much to throw it all away now. I think about that moment often, how liberated I felt afterwards. I'd searched so long for the heart of medicine, only to realize it was still beating within me, my passion. I decided to set myself free from the judgment of others. I was here to learn, and I would. I got off the train and went to work that day and put all thoughts of quitting out of my mind. 17 years later, I'm thinking about that moment again, the reset. I'm sitting in my car in the hospital parking lot and I don't want to get out. I want to keep driving. Something inside me isn't clicking the way it used to. My job has become something it never was before and yet always was, just a job. I don't know if it's the creeping cynicism, the looming specter of the monster emerging from the shadows yet again, the futility of it. Maybe it's knowing that I'm just a cog in the machine the constant noise, the climbing workload, the relentless pressure of bureaucracy and benchmarks. I get out of my car, adjust my stethoscope around my neck and head into the hospital. Enough, time to find my faith. The funny thing about searching for something is that when you finally stop searching, that's when you see clearly. That's usually when you find it. I get on the elevator and go up to one of the general medical floors. I'm here to see a patient I've known for many years. She greets me with a smile, clasping my hand in both of hers. Her room is filled with balloons that say happy birthday. I glance at her date of birth on my sign-out list, and it isn't her birthday. Who are the balloons for? She grins. For Horatio. Who's Horatio? She smiles gleefully like she's about to spill the beans in a major secret. Horatio is my kidney. She's a kidney transplant recipient. I took care of her before her transplant and now after. You named your kidney? She nods. I can't help but smile. Why Horatio? I love CSI, and my favorite character is Horatio. As she speaks, a part of me is listening attentively, and a part of me is looking at these balloons that she got to celebrate the date of her kidney transplant. Our worlds are built piece by piece, and every piece matters. We talk about her transplant functions, she's doing better, and then I mention that she looks tired, and the conversation takes an unexpected turn. Of course I'm tired, Dr. T, I'm in a hospital. I sigh, no sleep, she scoffs. In here, forget it. We both fall silent. She breaks the silence, you know, if hospitals really wanted to help patients, they'd let them sleep. Everyone else's schedule would just have to accommodate the patient's sleep. I nod, and she continues. And hospital food should be delicious, not tasteless, but real. I remain silent, she's on a roll. And you should encourage visitors and make it easy to get your entire records for this day and have the most comfortable beds. I finally speak up, good sleep, good eats, and good sheets. She laughs, yeah, just like that, simple things. I think about that. A hospital built from the ground up to center around the patients. Entire medications, labs, rounding schedules, the very architecture itself built around the patient experience alone. Gourmet foods for a variety of cuisines. 
quality sheets, no crushing bills awaiting the patient on discharge, fully covered care for everyone without the psychological weight of how to pay, diverse and empathic staff not under the pressure of productivity or profitability, a reset on the modern hospital healthcare delivery system. We finish our visit and I move on with my day. The interaction with my patient has reminded me of something crucial. So much power lies in our ability to reset, reset our minds, reset our paradigms, reset our systems, be the reset. Um, would that we had a healthcare system or hospital care system that was just so simple and patient-centered um, because everyone, you know, most people, almost everyone who works in healthcare is, does it for the right reasons, but these, these bureaucratic systems, I think, beat the humanity out of all of us. And gosh, those sheets are uncomfortable and the, and the beds are terrible and the food is almost always terrible. It's, it's true. And of course, the sleep in a hospital is somewhat of a joke. You know, another one of the, your metaphors that I think was great is, I think a lot of people talk about healthcare uh, education that is become the process of becoming a doctor, the long trials and educational process as being somewhat of a mountain. If I can only get to this next mountaintop and the next mountaintop, you know, med school, residency, fellowship. And you sort of realize that it's more like an ocean, like the open sea, uh, and that you learn how to swim better or that you learn how to build a boat, a stronger boat or better boat to withstand some of the changing tides and weather. Um, I thought that was, you know, really poetic, really poignant. Um, uh, can you comment about that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one, one of the great uh, blessings in my life, one of the great um, uh, things that I have to look forward to is, is getting to work with students, um, getting to work with uh, medical students, nursing students, you know, even college students, anyone who wants to shadow me. Um, when I when I listen to the questions that they have, and when I see medicine through their eyes, I feel re-energized. Um, but I also feel a little bit of the you know the old feelings that I had when I was approaching medicine. Is that medicine to me, as as a young man going into my education, uh, like you described, seemed like this insurmountable mountain peak. And students would ask me for advice, and a, a lot of the advice I get, especially on Twitter, actually, I would get messages and, and uh, DMs and, and questions about. You know, how do I deal with this? How do I make it to the top of this mountain? And I've been thinking about it, you know, my, my whole career, because I get this question so much. And at some point, I don't know exactly when, I realized that the whole framework was wrong. This whole idea of this mountain peak was wrong. It, it, it just, it set things up in such a way that um, implied that there was an end point. You know, there was the top of the mountain and you reach the summit and you're good, you're a doctor and you've learned all there is to know about medicine. But it's sort of, you know, mountain climbing is kind of the solitary activity. And I just realized all these different analogies about medicine, if you framed it that way, were just not right. So I started to think about what is it like? And that's when I came up with this idea of, of the ocean and not just the ocean, but the shoreless ocean in the sense that the ocean's stretching out forever. And uh, I actually wrote, uh, primarily because I got asked about, about it so much, I wrote a, uh, a short story about that. And um, it was really advice to, to medical students and students in general. And I guess people on any journey in life, the way you frame it and the way you approach it can really change your mindset. Sayed Tabatabai, congratulations on the book. And thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate the chance to, to spend some time with you and spread the word a little bit. It means a lot to me. Syed Tabatabai is a kidney doctor in San Antonio and author of a new book of poems called These Vital Signs. 
Well, that's our show for this Medical Monday. A production note. If you're a Studio Tulsa listener, you're probably aware that we're going on summer hiatus while we retool the show. Our longtime host and Public Radio Tulsa general manager, Rich Fisher, will be moving the show to a weekend slot come fall after 30 years in the host chair. Rich is a Tulsa institution, a polymath voice of wisdom and curiosity that engages everyone he interviews. He's also a gifted musician, too. It's been a privilege of my life having moved to Tulsa 12 years ago as a healthcare blogger who met Rich at an event and pitched him on some ideas, and he invited me down to the station and turned me into a Studio Tulsa commentator. From there, it was occasional guest hosting, then a three-season podcast we called Medical Matters, before settling into the Monday role as a permanent guest host producing Medical Monday for Studio Tulsa. Along the way, we've had masterful producing and editing from Scott Gregory, an esthete, a jazz aficionado, and font of great podcast ideas, many of which are in development right now. So look for us to return in the fall with a one-hour weekend show. It'll be both Rich and me in the chair, and I may stretch my wings a little bit and go beyond medicine and science to offer you some other topics. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm John Schumann, and this has been Medical Monday for Studio Tulsa.